Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by some some guests I'm super excited about. Uh, we have Rose Reed, who is pew, the pew, host, pew. yes, pew, 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 indeed, Hello. of the podcast, The Women, and her mom, Gail. Hello, everyone. Yeah. Hi, thanks so much for joining us, both of you. Yes. We were so excited to have you on because, obviously, your show is right up our alley, and we love everything that is happening. Um, we did a Get to listen to a couple of episodes is beautiful. Thank you. So thank you so much for sharing, and thank you for stopping by, both of you. We're We're thrilled. And our hometown of Atlanta... Yes, Atlanta, GA. Yes. Yes, we did a lot of sleuthing to figure this out, <laughs> and really we could have just asked. <laughs> but we were like, let's get to the bottom of yeah. where they're from. And there was a little bit of stalking, internet stalking. I'm like, does she live in Atlanta? Does she not? She's got an Atlanta number. I know these, I know this, you know, like yeah. area code. Yes. You know. <laughs> got to keep it mysterious. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Women? Sure. So uh, I'm Rose Reed. I'm the host of the Women and iHeart Radio Show. It is it's a long form biographical interview show. So every episode, I get the opportunity to sit down with one woman who's done something pretty extraordinary. And we've had a range of folks on from whistleblowers, politicians, uh, doctors, and singer songwriters. And you know, behind every baby is a village and behind every podcast is a family that either tolerates it or supports it or ignores it. And uh, I'm on the end of the spectrum where my mom is uh, a huge supporter and a, and a big part of getting it made. So, yeah, Gail. Well, for me, it's been an incredible opportunity to explore something that would have never occurred to me that I would enjoy, which is editing audio. I uh, love storytelling, I love reading, and I love listening to podcasts. I became of age and have spent most of my adult life listening to NPR mm-hmm. and really was addicted to quite a few of the interview shows and was just thrilled when Rose was able to put her vision of the women on paper and present it and team up with the folks at iHeart who have done a great job of supporting uh, the distribution of the show. So, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, um, and I uh, I love that you're here, that you had the idea to bring your mom in, and, and she you've been on The Women as well, um, because the title is Stuff Mom Never Told You. I've never been able to convince my mom to come on. I tried really hard because I was like, Mom, we could do this thing about where I tell you what modern dating is like. And oh my God. <laughs> you, you tell me what it was like at your time. And she was like, no. She wasn't game? <laughs> no, she, she was very tell you much secrets. not game. I feel like I want to join this conversation. You, I have never met your mother, but I know plenty about her. And I feel like I already know her. So I feel like I should join in and be like, hey, come be a part with us. Because I think that would be an episode, yeah. an excellent show, and she should date. Maybe she might, she might listen to you. Yes. Um, I, I've that's the power of friends. I've got a mission. You know, though. moms love friends. It's true, that is that, true. That's true. like a universal truth. Okay. Yes. Oh, you heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> okay. Perfect. <laughs> um, and can you, now that you told us about your show, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves yeah. and how you got into this? What do you want to know? What do you not want to know? So I just I did see that you were a part of the Free Meek project. Oh yeah. Which is phenomenal. And of course that got me excited. I was like, oh my God, she's a part of this really great concept and idea about maybe some of the abolition movement and some of the idea of abolishing all of that's a whole other story. We won't go there. But the Free Meek was a big project and it was a big conversation. Um, so we'd love to hear that project, the ARC podcast. Like, I, is it ARC? Do I call um, it ARC? It's, it's changed because okay. of litigation. But, um, oh, okay, okay. I know. Of course, like, they find my Squarespace and they're like, can you change it from ARC to ARC? And I'm like, Obviously. oh, I forgot how to use Squarespace. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to use it. But, but yeah, yeah, all it, of that. Yeah, like, ARC, let matter. us know how you got into this world because you've already been doing a lot of these projects and being a yeah, voice been and producing. Opening, op- opening up ideas. And, and especially for our perspective, one of the things that we want to focus on, not everybody's happy that was like that social justice level of things that need to change. And you've been a part of that, obviously, already. Mm-hmm. So 
lot of that. What have you been working on? What are you working on sure. outside of? Well, I've been producing with my own company for the last four or five years. I was at Gimlet Media before that, which is a podcast production company. And before that, I was working advertising Ogilvy and Mather, trying to stay sane. <laughs> I essentially always wanted to do radio. I really wanted just one of those radio jobs where you work in front of like a big soundboard and you have your headphones on and you're kind of taking calls from people driving in their cars. That was my dream. But I graduated during the recession and I was in LA at the time and actually it was my dad who gave me this pep talk who uh, I, told, I couldn't even get a unpaid internship part-time at NPR at the time. And I was, I was working some odd jobs uh, making ends meet and my dad was like, with your free time, you love radio. Just go to a obscure radio station, walk in, and just say, I'm here for the internship on a Monday morning at 9 a.m. And they'll take you. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what I did. I walked into uh, KPFK uh, Pacifica on a Monday morning and walked in and said, I'm here for the internship. And the next day I was cutting tape. Wow. And so you can imagine that kind of full circle 10 years later after doing video production and got in into podcast production once the industry started booming. And I'd already uh, knew how to cut audio. I have a, I actually have a very similar story. That's funny. Really? You two have a yeah. really close story, actually. Yeah, I, uh, in high school, I applied, I wanted to make documentaries. Oh, um, okay, yeah. And I applied to, at the time, this company was owned by Discovery Channel. And I applied, and they were like, you're a high school student, a little enthusiastic, try again later. And then I was going to move to China. I had a whole other thing after college. And a week before I was set to move, I get a call and they're like, hey, are you still interested? I haven't updated my resume or anything. It'd been years. And I came in and interviewed and they gave me the job. And here I am 10 years later. So what about you, Gail? Did you get into this? I really got into it with Rose. I've had through pure fear. (laughs) <laughs> calling her crying, being like, I need help, I need help, I need help. <laughs> Was that it? I, you know, I always have harbored this dream of <laughs> uh, hosting a radio show. And it really harkens back long before podcast days when I used to listen to the radio growing up in New York. And FM DJs were such cool people. Mostly men, but there was one woman in in New York who had the late night, midnight to 4 Mm -hmm. a.m. shift, Allison Steele, the night bird. And I I loved the way music was played, one song flowing into another, the idea of creating a theme. I never had the urge to write music myself, but I'm a big I enjoy music a lot, Mm -hmm. uh, as you could hear on the the Buffy interview. But I just never acted on it. Uh, She's been an accountant for most of her life. Yeah. And part-time. I mean, she doesn't actually cut the audio, but my mom will listen to episodes and give feedback on Mm -hmm. what's the story here or what should we open with or what should we trim. Mm -hmm. And and I think one of my my best contributions, if I may say. Oh, no. Tell us. At the beginning, (laughs) in the early... When Rose did her earliest interviews uh, back in the fall, it was constantly reminding her of what her mission was. Oh, yeah, yeah. That we're telling stories about extraordinary women who have done extraordinary things. And when you kind of start to bridge into journalism, the temptation is to do a deeper dive, to get other facts, maybe to interview other mm-hmm. people. And I I think it, it took three or four episodes, but we don't even have that discussion anymore. No. But mom is really good at, like, what's the core What's the core theme here and right. how do you keep proximity to it? That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Do you know the podcaster's prayer? <laughs> no. Don't judge me by my first 50 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so good for you. <laughs> you got yeah. that part out of the way. So I'm still yeah. good. Yeah, you're yeah. still I'm good. I'm still good. Okay. Yeah, yeah great, but great. your time is running out. No, friend. no, I'm going to hold on to it. Um, but kind of a segue off of that because uh, we wanted to spotlight two women that you've already covered on on your podcast, The Women. Um, and one of them is Buffy St. Marie, which she I hadn't heard of her. So this was news to me. Um, but that, You didn't know Buffy? No. Totally new to me. Wow. But see, that I, I listened to your episode and it was beautiful and I loved all the music in it. And I think this is great that we're going to talk about her because I grew up in a house that... 
<laughs> we listened to like pop. That's it. Oh, yeah. You know, whatever was on the radio, that that was it. We weren't a big music household, and my dad loved music, and he had records, but it was sort of like whatever he liked or whatever was on the radio, right. and that was it. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this and to hear about um, your experience with her because it's yeah. kind of a personal story behind oh, this Oh, we should one. have had you bring in the guitar again. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'll define one. Play us a song, lady. Oh, I, I, there actually is a guitar in here. I was going to say, there's one around here somewhere. No, no, that's really quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all she right. You can only do so much work for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's true. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Totally this understand. unpaid internship is really, uh, <laughs> you know what they say, not the first 50 episodes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I know. I know. But I really enjoy it, so yeah. it's, uh, it's great for me. I like it much better than account. <laughs> at this point in my life. <laughs> I, I, I think the first time I ever heard Buffy's name was in our blue Aerostar van, probably driving around very close to here in downtown Atlanta, listening to a live album of the Indigo Girls and one of their songs um, they introduced by saying, and this next song was written by Buffy St. Marie. It's called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And that just... I mean, in the way that that song is saying it, it, the the lyrics are like a history lesson, and it's so inspiring. And and also, it's the kind of song "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee" specifically, where you know you it's almost like a crash course in the truth of you know American colonialism, what has been happening to Native Americans and their land for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's. It makes you want to run. It makes you want to be active. It makes you want to vote. It's just the kind of song that makes you want to do so many things, and you find yourself singing to it every time. And after that, Mom went through a real Buffy phase. But Mom knew of Buffy from when she was a teenager. Yeah. As I said in the podcast, it just happened to be one of the first songs that I learned to play was written by Buffy called Universal Soldier. And it that song has pretty intricate and uh, descriptive lyrics. But because I learned it and then played it so much when I was so young, you know, I could still recite the words to it. <laughs> um, and that's actually one of my hidden talents. I have, I have a lot of <laughs> lyrics in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's um, five foot two and he's six foot four. Yeah. He's uh, been a soldier for thousands with, years. with missiles and with spears. He's all of 31 and he's only 17. And then it goes through these various religions. He's been a you know, Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist, and a Baptist, and a Jew. It's just, you know, it's... Um, so as soon as I heard this cut on the Indigo Girls, I just was fluttered with memories about the the other song, and then I wanted to know more about her because she really had disappeared from the American music scene. Uh, and that's when I I bought her. I'm sure it was a greatest hits album, and uh, I have to confess, uh, when when we were still buying things on CD, mm. and then that's how Rose got more exposed to her other songs, and that's when I learned about all the d- other songs that were so famous that she had written. Mm-hmm. Just so interesting when we interviewed her, listening to her talk about how she really had a fight for recognition, yeah, as a songwriter. I think it was easier in the music business to accept women as singers, but there were very few women back in the early, my youth, that actually wrote music and played their own music. Right, and she, in the interview you all did with her, she talks about that, about how she sold for $1, right? Mm -hmm. Um, She sold Universal Soldier for $1, in a, in a bar, you can imagine the scene, like if you watch Mrs. Maisel and you think of the gaslight or when you think of these, like, maybe coffee shops that a lot of folk singers would go to in the West Village, it sounded like it was a scene like that where mm-hmm. somebody sound like offered as if they were helping her, mm-hmm. um, right. but swindled her. Right. Sure. So if you're familiar with anything that's going on right now, especially with uh, Taylor Swift's album and the, the, write, and, uh, the writing that she's really doing about... The, the quagmire that she's in where they were basically like, you can earn back the right of your six albums if you make six more albums. Right. For each album, you can earn one. And that that kind of language is not, I mean, 
I don't know where we get off on like still continuing the indentured servitude speak. Like I thought yeah. we were retiring that or at least like being shameful about it um, or like closeting it in some way behind masking it behind some other man bureaucracy, shiny, shiny, I'll help you, help you dance. Yeah. But it reminded me so much of the kind of rigmarole that Buffy went through 40, 50 years ago of your talents you can earn back your talents if you, like, are indentured to me. Right. As an actor, <laughs> I do some acting, and I it shocks me how many times people are like, you should be so honored right. to be in my project. Maybe I'll give you footage. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to consider paying you, right. wow. and you probably won't even get that. So uh, it it's still very much a thing. And uh, one more thing about what happened with Buffy and then we'll we'll back up a bit and give some more backstory but eventually one of her her heroes Elvis Presley oh, yeah. came to her and was like hey I love this song it's like a romantic song with me and Priscilla yeah I recorded it and she was like nope yeah. <laughs> right you know and that was an interesting story because it was Elvis's manager and it you know of course any artist can cover a song and and make money off of that that record and, you know, mm-hmm. off of their version. But he wanted the, his manager was bullying her into giving her the, the writing mm-hmm. rights. Yeah, a cut of the publishing money because it would sell songs. She would make money from his version of it. Mm-hmm. You know, for every record, he she would make, I don't know, half a cent or whatever it was. And he want you know, the manager wanted a cut. And I think getting to the root of that question is, I want ownership of something you've created. Right. And feeling entitled to that, especially if it's a woman, if it's a person of color, if it's a woman of color, right. is the audacity is 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 incredible, um, but it's still so pervasive. Right. You can see it today when just the constant conversations when it comes to music specifically, as you were talking about Taylor Swift, and then they were talking about people who, women of color, who are continually bullied into, well, we gave you this opportunity, you owe us, instead of you earned this opportunity, we owe you. Which exactly. is such an odd sense of ownership, as you said. And like it is, it is like a modern form of indentured servitude. I yeah. mean, I gave you an opportunity. Now you need to pay me back somehow. And it's like, wait, but this is I did this. I created <laughs> this. This is my content. What are you talking about? What you're what you just said to me is the core the essence of sexual harassment. Right. See how right. mom brings it back Bringing to it the back. core, to the proximity, yes. to the kernel of the truth. No, it it's so true, though. It is. That whole misogynistic idea that this is what we have created in order to get what we have to do to unravel so many other things, because it is, it is a core of this idea of you owe me. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's really interesting when we think about it kind of in its equal counterpart, you know, when you see, and you see this in the workplace, but especially in art as we're using this example, you know, you see a a man's career take off and you hear, man, he is brilliant. (laughs) He is brilliant. And I think that you, you hear that. I, I, I often see that when, you know, managers or big record label, you know, big, big time producers will use that phrasing rather than Oh, Buffy St. Marie, oh, Taylor Swift, maybe one day you'll you'll work hard enough for me with the terms that I make mm-hmm. that you can eventually own that thing that you make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just all the systems in place. So I, when I, I was thinking about this because I was listening to this episode on Buffy St. Marie last night, mm-hmm. and I learned to play the guitar because of Green Day. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams was my first song. I could still play it. Um, but I, that, that got me to thinking of when I was that age, when you mm-hmm. were learning Buffy St. Marie and Universal Soldier, uh, I was learning a lot of men. Right, right. Like, right. Songs written by men. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I was honestly struggling for female artist. So I'm really glad that you you brought this person to talk about today. Um, and then I loved the music. And like I said, it was an introduction to me. So for any other listeners who might not be familiar, could you both give a rundown on who Buffy St. Marie is? Sure. I'll do the primer and then mom, if you want to take that away and add the, the deeper meaning. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Uh, Buffy St. Marie is a singer-songwriter. She's an iconic folk singer. She really came of age during 
the time of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. And she was a folk singer and she was a self-taught musician. She also happens to be, and I'll go back before I go forward, she was adopted um, and she thought she was orphaned. Um, She actually was born on a reservation in Canada. And this was during the time when there was a lot of um, re-education. I mean, I'm sure there's a better way to phrase that, but that's the polite way that the American government has started talking about its history. But during the re-education and, and placing children, Native American children in other places, whether it was a boarding school or um, adoption agencies. So she was actually adopted by a family in Massachusetts, learned how to play the piano, play the guitar. She was always a creative person. And she really early on in her early 20s wrote a string of songs uh, ranging from protest songs like Universal Soldier to love songs like Until It's Time For You To Go covered by Elvis Presley, uh, writing the music like Up Where We Belong, Gentleman and Officer. Oh, excuse me, An Officer and a Gentleman. <laughs> and uh, she, she's a really iconic uh, folk singer and she's a true activist, Native American activist. I think the one thing that Uh, is really wonderful about Buffy is that although some of her songs have been made famous by other artists and covered by other artists, she has persisted and she's released dozens and dozens of albums. Mm -hmm. But Gail, from from the perspective of the the Vietnam War and actually growing up during that era when these songs weren't just kind of nostalgia, but when they were actual real-time calls to action, how would you phrase um, when you think of Buffy's songs? Well, it definitely reminds me of that time because the war was was very real. It was a very everyday part of our lives then, and it was it was foundational for me. I because of I was born in fifty five. By the time the war was really in full swing, I was twelve and thirteen years old. So it was my formative years. And one of the things I really wanted to follow up on what Rose said, not about the war, but. I, and I didn't realize this about Buffy until we were doing the piece on her and I watched some some other interview video of her. So when I listened, when I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I heard her voice in the... Um, There's a scene where Margot Robbie, who's playing Sharon Tate in Quentin Tarantino's movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, gets in her car and you hear a song come on. It's The Circle Game, which is a very, very well-known Joni Mitchell song. The Circle Game. Yeah. And the seasons, they They go go round and and round. And I had never heard Buffy sing this song. And I knew Joni had written it, and I I know Joni Mitchell's version. And I, but I knew because we were in the middle of editing this this piece that it was Buffy's voice. It was because she has a very unmistakable kind of trill to her singing. And um, when I looked up some video of her singing it, I saw her being interviewed. And, and what I understood from what she was telling, the story she was telling, Joni Mitchell's Canadian also. And she had heard Joni Mitchell long before she was famous. And taken that song and recorded it as a way of giving Joni Mitchell's career a boost. And I just think that's so interesting when somebody that you know of that's so enormously famous. Like Joni Mitchell. Like Joni Mitchell is helped by somebody, you know, another sister, if you will, another another musician who, uh, and then the interesting thing Buffy said in this interview was she thought Joni Mitchell was so great and Joni gave her a, a demo tape, and she carried it around everywhere she went and would play it for anyone she could get to listen to it. So really helped contribute to, to somebody else's career. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty amazing. It's a strong sentiment. Also, there was an autobiography published on Buffy St. Marie about a year ago, and the foreword is written by Joni Mitchell. And it has that sentiment exactly of, you know, when I was coming up, I looked up to Buffy, and there were very few true singer-songwriters as Buffy was also a writer. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really, it's a really interesting connection to think of that. And also to remember, and apropos of our conversation, of really that network of, of women and right. really um, one woman's success is is many others, but there's many women behind it. That's beautiful. Yeah, that is yeah. one of our favorite things to talk about, <laughs> women supporting women. Yes. <laughs> yes. Give me all the fills. And <laughs> this might seem like a, 
This is an artsy question I wouldn't like, but I feel like you two will be good at it. Um, how, <laughs> Didn't I tell you that my mom used to watch Northern Exposure? She's perfect for Oh, it. perfect. perfect. Um, how would you describe her music for people who haven't heard it? Buffy's music? Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely what I would call folk music. It's uh, a lot of solo guitar accompanying a, vo- a single vocal. Almost everything I've I've heard of hers is is her singing unaccompanied by a band or with other f- people singing and doing harmony with her. So in a in a sense, I would totally describe it as classic 1960s folk music because mm-hmm. that is really how you picture all all the singer songwriters that came mm-hmm. f- from that era: Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. Judy Collins, everybody playing guitar. I, I, Stop, John Denver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. You think you, you imagine someone standing on stage with, you know, an acoustic guitar right. and pouring their heart out. Right. That's Buffy St. Marie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. De- totally. And, and in her later work, where I've seen more current videos on YouTube, Mom is the original sleuth. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's dangerous. So on, on, more current music of Buffy's, I I hear uh, drums and certain way of singing that, and even the lyrics. Now that I know of her, uh, like her process, mm-hmm. she's really yeah. she's really brought in. Like she's made kind of the music industry that pushed her out for so long and even blacklisted her. Mm-hmm. The Johnson administration, the next administration, I guess the Nixon mm-hmm. administration, radio stations following suit. She has kept true to her her North Star and her compass, and even and in doing so, she has evolved and really embraced her roots. Mm-hmm. And so many of the people that join her on her albums and some of her, especially more recent albums that Mom's talking about, feature a lot of artists, um, other Native American artists and Native American instruments mm-hmm. and ways of singing. And she really has folded that into her later work. Yeah, and going back to Universal Soldier, I know um, on her website, correct? She has correct. like a yeah. almost like crib notes or something <laughs> of like it's an annot- it's you know it's an annotated you know line by line referencing what each what each line is referring to in terms of he's he's five foot five foot two and six feet four. Those the were the height, height parameters. parameters. He's 17 and 34. 31, yeah. You got to say it, Mom, please. (laughs) Stop stop leaving me out here to dry. (laughs) He's all of 31 and he's only 17. So the age parameters. But um, I know that... Age parameters for the draft. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And for for going to war. So she basically, she takes her song and line by line dissects not just the inspiration, but references what that means in the historical context. Mm. See what I mean by history lesson? It's crazy. It is. Mm -hmm. So stay home from school. I know, I'm just joking. (laughs) That's the takeaway. Uh, (laughs) Now, that is something your mother would never tell you. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, And so going back to the blacklisting you pointed out in that episode, Mm -hmm. that if you look at white artists, they were not similarly blacklisted. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, they're doing protest songs, and nobody, I mean— it was the complete opposite. They weren't blacklisted. They Their careers were defined by it. Right, right. They made a whole career out of protesting. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we just saw um, Bob Dylan being awarded a, a Nobel Prize for what could be looked at as a canon of protest songs. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> and uh, she she was really big, as we've said, into activism. And intersexual feminism, perhaps yes. before that was a big buzzword, right. what it's all about. Because right. um, she said something about, like, it has to be more than being emotional or being angry. And with Universal Soldier, you see that. Like, she did this Homework. content. Like, everything right. meant something. And I think that's really powerful. And we're talking about the... I feel like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes um, art and creativity kind of gets just dismissed. Right. Um, as it's like, oh, yeah... Like they're going to to do this thing, but it can be a super powerful right. way to move people. Exactly. I think today's become more controversial even to do so. As you are part of the Free Meek project, that was very controversial back to the Black Lives Matter conversation. You think it's controversial? I yeah, I think it was one of the big controversies. when 
when it was coming out because they were like the whole level of just do what they say and you'll be okay. Just follow the law <laughs> yeah. and you'll be okay. And there's this whole like aye, aye, aye. big yeah. drawn line yeah. in that level of blue lives matter, all lives matter, black lives matter, and why this is so important right. and the incarceration of people of color, especially black men, as we've talked about many a times and it's continued to talk about as part of the political conversation and why is it not a bigger part of the conversation as the debates are happening all of that and whatnot. And then we talk about, yeah, for the longest time, music did do that. And sometimes it was as simple as just being saying, I'm angry, but for women of color, for women in general, for women who protest, they have to give a rational reason as, no, really, I know what I'm talking about. Let right. me break it down for you. Yeah. This is what this looks like instead of just being like, I'm angry. I'm going to you know, have a protest in bed type of thing. No, <laughs> it's important. It's important. All of that is important, but the level of proof that someone has to give to be taken seriously as I know what I'm saying. I know that I am a person of color and these are the reasons these things matter. And whether it's about drafting and war, a war that was unnecessary, whatever what we want to say back and forth, and even today again talking about the free meek or any conversation when it comes to proving who understands an idea or something that we're trying to fight for, we have to prove more often than not why we are rational and not just emotional. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And I feel so like, yeah. That's something that mom and I talk so much about because, I mean, when we think about it in historical context and some of these institutions that we're trying to change, these institutions that we're trying to change were set up for the very reason that we are trying to change them. Right. And we... When we think about, you know, the United States as kind of being this uh, special project that, you know, really took its autonomy to a whole new level, you know, when we think of being a kind of a cousin or stepchild of the Commonwealth, I mean, we think of how these systems and really codification of law is used to, with a pen, define who are the haves and have-nots. Right. Mm -hmm. And then as those of us who women people of color, marginalized groups, as we try to carve out places for us in that system, we're not blowing up the system. Right. We're using that fountain pen with the best penmanship on the best parchment paper to show, no, I I get your rules and I play by them right. and not and I'll do you one further. I'll do the, I'll be the best at them. Right. I just want to live. Right. And that's uh, that's the fight that we see today, and I think it's it is um, disheartening, but also really empowering to see the creative way that people play in that poker game of I see you, I raise you, and I call you. Right. And so that's artists like Buffy, artists like Meek Mill. Right. You know, they use they use a language that has been you know kept from so many groups of people, and they use their poetry, mm -hmm. and they get to the kernel of truth of what they see whether it's in the Vietnam War, the criminal justice system, and they're able to say, here are the shared values that no one can deny. Right. And here is the beauty of what can be. And right. here is the beast of what we must recognize. Right. And so I think that's what's really extraordinary. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a nice room. <laughs> good crowd, good crowd. <laughs> we have a lot more in our discussion. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Now back into the interview. Mom, can you hum um, oh, yes. so people know up where we belong? Oh, I can hear it in my head right now. Go for it. Okay. Can you sing? Richard no? Gere in his white <laughs> outfit going to pick up Deborah Winger. Yeah. Deborah Winger Deborah from Winger. the factory. Does pick you up? Yeah. Yeah. Right? The, 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 Love the night in China. Or Moulin Rouge. Oh, right. On the elephant. Oh. Love lifts us up where we belong. Do I have to do this? <laughs> Love lift us up where we belong. Oh my God, it's most terrible. <laughs> where the eagles fly. Not like sing, sing, just like hum it so people can recognize mm -hmm. it. Okay. Can we just not 
to yeah, have. Yeah, I loved it. Okay. Look, we're that fans of great. karaoke over here, so this is phenomenal. <laughs> yes. We're enjoying And it. I'm gonna... really bad, but I think I'm good. So. Oh, you can come to our house. <laughs> oh, perfect. She is I do. passionate. I'm, yeah, see? <laughs> I'm really she gets passionate. really into I was it, in yeah. a band in high school. <laughs> was this uh, the Green Day cover band? <laughs> it was Green Day based. It was very close. <laughs> <laughs> I love Green Day adjacent. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my hit song was called I Don't Believe in Love because oh. I was so emo. <laughs> so emo. Uh, and I can still play it. But anyway, uh, I will not have a lasting impact when it comes to the musical world, I believe. But uh, what do you think, what was uh, Buffy's impact on you both specifically? And what do you think it will be at large? Thinking about Buffy's music makes me think about some of the artists in this world that their their poetry and their their link to life and their want their want to share it with others it is is such a on any day makes you just feel like okay I I can get out of bed and there are other people in this world that are not going to push me around and they're going to lift me up and I think thinking of uh, Buffy's music whether it's a love song until it's time for you to go covered by Elvis um, up where we belong huge Grammy and Academy Award winning hit from Officer and a Gentleman or um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, a protest song and a battle cry for justice. You, you know, you see the, the beauty and poetry in her penmanship. What about for you, Gail? For me, what really has lingered with me from talking with Buffy, which was really very special, Rose arranged for a little follow-up interview, as you heard. And so mom could be there. I was so sitting right yes. in this very room. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was probably the best part of the Buffy thing. Yeah, really. it was so great. Let's be real. But her, her sincerity in talking to me about my own musicianship, Mom was like, do you think it's too old for me to perform? And Buffy I'm too was, old to learn how to perform, yeah. And Buffy was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> She's just so encouraging, but just also just so sincere. And she really walked Mom through, like, this is what you're going to do. Yeah, you're she had a plan somewhere. for me. <laughs> no friends and family invited. They're the worst critics. <laughs> I thought that was great. I love that. And uh, has really encouraged me to think about my singing and playing differently. And the other thing, too, was when she was talking about how she came to write the song Universal Soldier and she was in the airport and she saw wounded soldiers coming back mm-hmm. from Vietnam. And this is before the U.S. had said, we are at war right. Right. in well, Vietnam. They, they kept it a secret for quite some time, um, even though you know, people were dying. Her way of phrasing her opinion about what was really going on underneath the surface in terms of people who wanted, whose business it was to make money off of the war machine, essentially. Uh, So being that the Vietnam War really came out of the rah-rah USA mentality of the 1950s, everything I knew during that era, contemporaneous with the war, was we were fighting communism, and that was, it was an ideological fight. But her ability to immediately see the underlying... Um, money-making yeah, machine and the greed. economics greed. and greed driving uh, and it. And rich men making money off poor men. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just very prescient. And the way that she talked about it, it wasn't as if she was apologizing for her opinion. It was <laughs> as if she was stating a fact that yeah. uh, that was indisputable. Right. And I really respected how she presented herself. We could keep talking about her forever, uh, but there's a whole episode on your podcast for listeners who want to learn more. Um, I also love it because uh, it was Valentine's Day episode, mm-hmm. and <laughs> my Valentine's. mom is also my Valentine's, Aww. and on our Valentine's episode, I did a similar thing about my mom. <laughs> That's so nice. Yeah. Yes, so I totally connected to that. But I guess we should move on to our next person. Okay. Yes, yes. another big favorite. Pew, pew, pew. Yes. Um, so, yeah, someone else we wanted to talk about is Fumzile Mlambo Nuka. And you got to interview her in Nairobi. I did. Yes. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. It was amazing. I'm very jealous of that opportunity. I was, I was <laughs> a foot away from her, That's sitting uh, next to her in a conference room. Uh, in a hotel in Nairobi, and the whole time I'm holding my microphone, I thought, 
oh, my God, I'm holding my microphone in front of this woman who has done so much for the earth. It's crazy. (laughs) Yes. And it was a gender equality summit, yes? Yeah. So, and uh, and the fall of 2019 was the 25th anniversary of essentially the Women's Bill of Rights um, that was made uh, in the mid-'90s. There were a couple of really big conferences in Beijing and, and in Cairo. So... Uh, in Cairo 94, a lot of countries, I think over 175 countries came together and said, and I, I don't know if you guys are going to laugh or, you know, if you say finally, but they basically said that women's rights are human rights. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a kind of uh, laugh, but right. yes. <laughs> but what they, one of the things that this, was called ratification. One of the things that this initiative really did was give fuel to a lot of organizations and also governments around the world to say, no, we we have to do this. We have an obligation to do this. And we're going to be measured by quantifiable elements in 10, 20, 25, 50 years. So maternal health, wanted versus unwanted pregnancies, uh, those kinds of things are measured globally and then compared um, during these conferences. And so the Nairobi Summit was a 25th anniversary of the Cairo Conference in 94, and people from all over the world came together. It was hosted by Kenya, Denmark, and the United Nations. And so the head of uh, UN Women, Pumzile, was there, and um, I got to go. And the United Nations Population Fund um, helped me get to the summit, and I did interviews with them, and that was really extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome. And she's really awesome. Right. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell tell us about her? <laughs> sure. Pumzile Malamu Nuka, she is from South Africa, and she Pumzile leads UN Women. And prior to that, she was deputy president of South Africa, which is the equivalent of vice president of South Africa. She was a minister in Nelson Mandela's cabinet. Uh, she... Nelson Mandela was one of uh, her mentors uh, and, I guess, technically her boss. And she she was really active during, uh, you know, apartheid, just like so many of her peers and so many people who she considered, you know, really her friends were that whole um, party that was with Mandela. Mm-hmm. And so she worked her entire life looking at justice and really looking at women as this keystone element in communities. And it's something that she's been able to pinpoint at every part of her career, whether she was she was a teacher at the YWCA and as a cabinet minister reforming mining rights. At every point, she really sees how to impact the most women with institutional change and reforming infrastructure. And she's really she's really incredible. She also has a lot of like humor and light and uh, is just a delight to be around. Yeah, one of the things that stuck out to me in that and in your interview with her is um, she she too brought up the importance of women supporting women or finding your mentors or inspiration and in other women, and uh, she she said that she thought perhaps the South African government was more afraid of women than men. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they would you know stand in front they of would tanks. stand in front of tanks. Yeah, 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 and it was just. Really amazing to hear her talk about that. And then she would say things in passing that I'd be like, wait, hold on. I know. Uh, yeah. How many times have you been arrested? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she was just, she was a delight. And she she was in prison, like, sending notes? Yes? So Pumzile's husband was in prison. Right. Okay. So her husband, um, and at the time was her boyfriend, fiancé, and if you know, if you can imagine, Pumzile was you know a student and an activist, and she was a part of the the political party of Nelson Mandela was a part of, and you know all of these people had been living um, without basic rights. Mm-hmm. I just want to give some context for apartheid at, at the time that her boyfriend was and, and now husband was in jail. I mean, millions of people in South Africa had their homes bulldozed mm-hmm. because they weren't in the right vicinity. They weren't in the right precinct for someone of their color or class to be in. So many South Africans who were not white 
did not have electricity, did not have running water. So the, the apartheid government had managed to not only deprive people of their human rights, but of um, certain dignities that, you know, all of white South Africa had. And thinking of all these people who were students and intellectuals and activists who were imprisoned, whether they were doing something that technically broke the law or just because they were perceived as a threat. Mm -hmm. Nelson Mandela served for over 20 years uh, in prison because, you know, he was perceived as a threat Mm -hmm. and he was the leader of his party. And that party was abolished Mm -hmm. um, from South Africa. Uh, They wouldn't recognize it as a party. So that also makes us think about how recognition is so important today. Uh, at that time, um, Humzile's boyfriend, uh, now husband, and as in so many of their friends, were imprisoned. And so they were passing notes to each other. I I asked her how they communicated. I was one, you know, as I just worked on the Meek Mill project, you know, co- over a couple years ago, I got really familiar with how, you know, you get your number. And it's very complicated to, to get called and to receive and make calls mm-hmm. to someone in prison, you actually can't call them. And for them to call you, it's um, it's like a crazy Easter egg hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so I was trying to picture what it was like for her uh, in the 80s to, to talk to her boyfriend on the phone while he was imprisoned. And she said, oh, no, we couldn't talk on the phone. We had to send each other letters. Oh, but they weren't like letters that you could like to send. We smuggled letters and they were on all kinds of pieces of paper from uh, folded up so guards couldn't pass it or they were um, passed on toilet paper Mm -hmm. so it could be inconspicuous. And so there were all these notes that, you know, essentially was, you know, their relationship while he was imprisoned. That just sounds like love. I know. When you're willing to go (laughs) that far. I know. Just to be like, hey, how are you today? (laughs) Which is not what they would say. But I'm just in that level of like... Wow, dedication. I know Pumzile was saying during the interview that some of these letters were read in public. It's a long story, and she didn't tell me all the details, but during um, there was some kind of litigation, and these letters were subpoenaed, and they were read out loud, and she was so embarrassed. And uh, her husband came up to her and tapped her and said, you know, I never got that letter. <laughs> I didn't know you said that about me. <laughs> so while she's like, you know, dying of humiliation, right. he was just, you know, I, I just think that's such a sweet love story. It is. It really is. She made a point at, to say that she became much more cautious about her activity when her boyfriend became imprisoned right. because it would not be smart for both of them to be in prison at right. the same time. That's a really good distinction, mm-hmm. yeah, that only one person of the household or one parent right. can really afford to be imprisoned. Right, right, right. Uh, and the other thing, talking about writing, that I just found so amazing, oh, a couple of things. First was just what a tremendous opportunity the YWCA provided to her. It just the, the organization and the structure, because it introduced her to so many things that she, as a, I mean, she doesn't really talk about where she grows up. Well, she, well, I mean, we just didn't have time to go into de- yeah, all yeah. this detail, but Pumzile grew up during a time where the YWCA was really active in her community, and it was one of her first jobs, and she became a teacher. She even went to Switzerland when she was really young, working in Switzerland as a teacher. But she talks about this really strong community that she joined and was a part of. Mm-hmm. And they had a pen pal program. Oh, yeah. Which... You know, I hadn't thought about it in a million years. But kids used to write each other, and it was really cool to have a pen pal. In another country. In another country. I I had a pen pal. Did you guys? Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to date myself. I actually, I know. Come on. Even, even as a kid, though, I was suspicious my pen pal wasn't real. Oh. (laughs) You were afraid of being catfished? Yes. Yes. I was like, Roman... You need to give me some real facts here about your life. I don't know. <laughs> you wanted some details? <laughs> I did. I wanted something some... I could fact check and prove he was real. Some My brothers pranked me a lot. Aww. So I was very oh, okay. paranoid. Okay. I'm like, who's going to go to that elaborate of uh, My brothers pranks would. Wow. Oh, yeah. absolutely they would. <laughs> to a, like a first grader. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely would. Did you ever find out? No, I still have my doubts about Roman. Roman, if you're listening... Annie from Lumpkin County, 
Were you real? <laughs> Reveal thyself, Roman. Yeah. And wow. just drop some details along the way. Yes, Did I you need love to know. French fries and khakis. Or? <laughs> I was gonna say either this is the beginning of a really bad Netflix movie or a really good Hallmark movie. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I like that line yeah, right th- there. There's a yeah. line. It straddles. There's a line. Yes. We do have some more for you, listeners. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. As we were like reading and researching and he- listening to uh, the interviews on Pumzile, she sounds like she's just a diehard, like has always been in Such trekking through mm-hmm. in being an advocate. And her, her focus was to not only find rights for all, which, by the way, during the apartheid, it was just, hey, let's just survive as black people in this community that's been taken over by absurdity and racism, essentially, um, into, hey, let me go one step further because I know even in this, women are being looked over. Right. Um, and we saw that she was sworn in in 2013, I believe. Was that right? Uh, the, as for you yeah. and women? Like, what is her motivation that she continues on this line? Like, it's just such a powerhouse move that not only did she focus beyond that, but going into the UN, which is a representation for all. Like, did she talk about that a little more? Oh, yeah. Well, I think in... For Pumzile, and I think this relates back to, you know, when you start a pen pal relationship, when you live in a country that doesn't even provide everyone with equal rights, she she describes having this epiphany of being a global citizen. Mm-hmm. And there she has friends in other countries. And I think for her and for so many of her peers, uh, so many other people who worked in the Mandela cabinet, they were not satisfied by just saying, oh, we're going to... They were not satisfied with doing the bare minimum for switching the government from after apartheid. They really wanted to establish human rights, basic dignities to every single person in the country. And that meant bringing electricity. That meant getting right. running water to, to, to almost every citizen and trying to um, make an infrastructure where not only had there been none, but the apartheid government had actively tried not to build it. And from working within the cabinet and becoming the minister, she worked as a minister overseeing the mining and reforming mining in South Africa. And then she worked as its deputy president. And then she took a break and she got her, um, she went back to school and really studied information, really studied technology. Mm-hmm. She was really interested in how do we have new tools and use technology to share education and information in mobile ways and mm-hmm. smart ways. Bring it to rural areas. Bring it to people who have been marginalized or left out because of rugged terrain or because of bad government. Mm-hmm. And she is not satisfied with the status quo. I think she is one of those people who looks at the world. And I think when we heavy sigh, mm-hmm. she's like, that is an opportunity, man. Right. So I think when we look around and we're like, oh, another, are now, you know, another picture of, of all these men making decisions for women. Mm-hmm. She looks at it as like, now I know who my call is tomorrow morning to talk about gender uh, equality in their administration by 2030. Right. And yeah, I think we had an interview earlier today when we were talking about it, when we talk about phenomenal people who make a change or push to make change or fight for other people's rights. It's literally those who are like, oh, there's not anything for that. There's not an opportunity. Let me go find it. Let mm-hmm. me go do this. Right. I'm going to create my own way. I'm going to create my own steps. Or right. I'm going to create my own path <laughs> in order to get this <laughs> done. Yes. Which is a phenomenal take. And that's kind of an understanding today as we are sitting on a lot of things that we thought we had gotten past uh, and we're having to have backtrack. It's kind of like, okay, Let's refine those steps. How do we get back and go beyond this uh, boulder, this uh, hump, rather, and yeah. this block for us? How do we continue on and seeing, creating a new path, finding a new way? And I think that's what's so inspiring about people like Pumzile. They look at these problems like, oh, my friend is throwing a party and has no appetizers. I know exactly what I'm going to make tomorrow. Like, they look at something as opportunity and solution and then how to scale that. Mm. And that's what's so impressive. But more than a dinner party, more like 
you know, um, global global change and uh, gender equality across every nation. All the things. All the you things know. we need. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just making vast, mass, massive changes for everyone. All good for the better. Love it. So with that, because you kind of already highlighted it, from each of these women, Buffy to Pumzile, what are takeaways that you had from each of the interviews or conversations that you're like, yes, I'm going to live that way or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think that way or I'm going to push that way? From Pumzile, sitting next to a woman who was mentored by Nelson Mandela and who worked in his uh, parliament and seeing her joy and her lightness really made me think about how we all have a gift to carry ourselves in our own way. Mm. When she sat next to me and I asked her how she got the news that she became minister in his cabinet and she said, oh, I got a phone call when I was traveling and they told me to come in and see the president and I don't think that you ever get called in for good news, so I avoided him for weeks. <laughs> and, then, and then finally they, they called her and they were like, um, no, really, come in. And he told her, he said, I really think that you you should be a minister in the cabinet. And she said, she refers to him as Tata, the, the affectionate name for her father. She said, I'm, I'm not ready. There's so many competent people in your cabinet. Why would you choose me? And he said, I've been a prisoner most of my life. And no one has taught me how to do this job. And I, I learn every day. And so will you. And Pumzile said to me that that inspired her. But after that, she was like, Yes. Okay, then. <laughs> like, really took that as, as like carte blanche for like, I can, if he can say that, I can believe in myself. Right. And just her humor. That's just such, such a lovely thing to walk away from. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that my mom and I talk a lot about. So many of these interviews um, and what we share with our audience is a condensed, abridged version of a conversation. So usually it would take an hour, we cut it down to a half an hour, mm-hmm. or we take 90 minutes, we cut it down to 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. But after listening to these multiple times and thinking about these women in the context of their backgrounds, different historical contexts, these different countries from South Africa to Kenya to Canada to America, we often find ourselves talking about the patterns of the way that a lot of women feel like they had a choiceless choice, Mm -hmm. that they had to do the right thing, that they have a moral compass that they couldn't ignore. Mm -hmm. We we talk about, we were just talking about this, about um, how these, these interviews really bring up kind of common, how how would you phrase it? No, as I, I listen to a new interview, it is, the norm to hear something that will remind me of some, that there's a common thread. There's so much commonality, whether it's two different people whose lives were tremendously affected by being pen pals. Because mm-hmm. uh, I was thinking, right. Yasmin, uh, right? Pumzile had a pen pal, and that really made her think her, herself as a global citizen. And one of my uh, guests, Yasmin Abdel Majid, who is a Sudanese Australian writer, her parents ended up in Australia because of her mother had a really good pen pal. Oh, wow. I mean, that's unbelievable. Wow. And so that, that's been a common, just those interesting, they're not coincidences. Mm-hmm. They're just, you think about pen pals as something that we did for fun or right. amusement, a cultural sharing, you know, before there was the internet. But it really did open horizons for so many people or just being in the right place at the right time. People get opportunities that make them who they are. So it's not, you know, it's not always in our control. We like to think that we make decisions every day. We educate ourselves. We go to college. We learn a skill. We pursue that as a vocation or maybe an avocation or a hobby. But life continually presents us with circumstances that really clearly define our path. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, it is how you take that path that makes you who you, you are. And, oh, my God, preach. That is every woman and, on, you on know, this show. On this show. Uh, it's just unbelievable how people s- step up to their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And also how they see tornadoes coming through their town and everyone, there's chaos, everyone's running, and they say, okay, well, I guess I have to do something. Right. Mm-hmm. And listening, and then you know, really coming away from Buffy just makes me think 
how lovely it is to have music in the house. Right. And, um, you know, having my mom have create a home where singing and dancing and right. music playing and blasting and her learning, oh, I got to learn this song on this electric guitar and I want to play my acoustic guitar for these songs. And, you know, when she played, you know, she was in a good mood and that was really nice for the house. Right. And that really, that's all, I think, Buffy is an amazing artist and poet and researcher, but she also really, I think, loved uh, and appreciated, like, our love of music. Mm-hmm. But I also think another major commonality is it, when Rose talks to someone who's from my generation, someone who came of age in the, the 60s or the 70s, she always asks th- this question, oh, which God. is... Why, how do you feel about the fact that we're still fighting today for the same things that you were fighting for mm-hmm. 30, 40, 50 years ago? Mm-hmm. And it just continually brings home how hard it is to overcome you know, the things that we are fighting, whether it's sexual harassment or... The record labels. Record, you know, recognition Gender being equality, valued, right? Women's health. Yeah. Which is health care. The, the same conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there are conversations we thought we had put to bed, right. and now here we are, you know, the Supreme Certainly. Court is hearing another case today. Right. So it's it's the never-ending battle. Right. And how how do you, I mean, I think that's the biggest challenge is, do we ever reach a time when we can right. move on to new, you know, new topics? Well, Pumzila says twenty thirty. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, All right, yes. we got ten years. We got this. Yes. But you know, I think the good part with that is that unlike before, we actually have a roadmap. We actually have icons. We actually have people who've already right. paved and had this conversation. Of like, this is what we use. Not only can we use this now, but we have even more science to go behind it. And we can take what we gave you mm-hmm. way back when, not way back, but back when, and, and now add to it. Because there's a foundation here now. And, and I'm very grateful for that as well. Because it's good to hear. It is. It is. The, the, these are people who have paved away and have already kind of taken the big parts, the difficult parts, by being the martyr, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And now we're here and picking back up where they had it. Unfortunately, we would have loved to have been to the point where, like, we don't have to think about this ever again, hallelujah, but we're not. But instead, now we have a little more of a clear roadmap of this is how it went this way, and we're going to come back and reframe what we already saw can work and what we know is true, which is a freaking amazing thing. I will say. And believe me, I'm not an optimist. This is a phenomenal <laughs> no, moment. she's not. Usually I'm the one that says everything is burning and, and we're all going to die. But <laughs> it is nice to hear, rehear some of the things that, yes, this has already been happening. They have been fighting. It's, we're not alone. And they're Those giving, two things. Yeah, they are giving us roadmaps. They're giving us, they're giving us uh, models for how we can fight. They're also um, showing us that we can lead our own fights. And I think that that's what's, I love so much about the podcast itself and using audio and in this way to share women's stories and their own voices. For so long, women's stories and their own voices um, have been kept away. They've been hidden figures, um, so to speak. And I think that that's one of the most exciting things about this younger generation and with the democratization of sharing information. You can't keep women in the dark. You can't keep people of color and their stories on the sidelines because they're front and center. I totally agree, and that's definitely been the theme for today and for past couple of episodes. <laughs> episodes we've yeah. had this, and we love it. Yeah, because I feel like these women that we've spoken about today and that you talk about on your podcast that you talk with um, are inspirational, and we didn't have that for a long time. The women were doing these things. People of color were doing these things. We just weren't hearing about it, but now we're hearing about it, and just so many times I've heard... Someone we've talked to say, you know what, I saw a problem, no one was doing anything about it, I'll do it then. Right, right. And I, I'm very excited by the idea of more and more people doing that thing. And I think that's the way we're going to see change. Because people in power don't really have any reason to change. 
some of them do because they recognize, oh, I should help other people, I should uplift other people, but they don't really have necessarily the same reason and they don't see the same problems. Right. Well, they haven't listened to the Buffy St. Marie songs or the right. or or sat down with Pumzile and realized that, you know, the little people's liberation, the women's liberation, liberation of marginalized people that you've been pushing, pushing, pushing because you want your, you know, your all your land or whatever you think it is you have, guess what? Your liberation is tied up in our liberation too. Right. And, you know, if you join our fight, maybe men, you'll get to wear more colors to work or whatever it is that you yes. haven't had yet. You know, there's so, I think that's what's really exciting about what's coming next is um, is really winning over uh, the institutional powers and, and having them realize that their liberation is tied up in our own. Right. Right. Totally agree. We always say... Sexism hurts everybody. Everybody. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah. thank you both so much for no, being thank here. You. This thank you. It's really we very love, generous. Thank you so much. No, we love the podcast. Giving platforms to uh, women and people of hey. color, that is the number one thing that I, I love seeing in, in new media, in any media, giving pe- allowing people to have a voice in the story. So thank you, both of you. For being a part of that. And then we also need to know, where can we find you? You can find the women uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts on iHeartRadio or Apple. And you can follow us at the Women Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah, tell us what you think. Tell us what you want. And uh, we'll try to give it to you. Yes, please go check that out, listeners. It's a delight. Um, and if you want to email us, you can. Our email is stuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I'm Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Andrew. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 